Which one are we doing so you don't like surprise me? Which one? In, the intro or outro? Intro. Intro. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sweet crackers. Is that bad? <laughs> <laughs> Let me see how many. I didn't know what we're going to do. Oh. Sweet crackers. I like that one. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matt. Hello, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Mm. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with my co-host, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hi, Paul. How you doing, Paul? Great, Stuart. Thanks so much for not having me. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> so how, how is, how's everything going, Paul? Not bad. Not bad. It's, it's warm here. Is it really? It's pretty warm yeah. here, too. I think yeah. it's warm everywhere. I wanted to do a, uh, hold on, this is going to be an interesting uh, part of the show here. What? I wanted to present Stuart with a somewhat serious moment. Oh, no. This is the last, this is the last time that Stuart and I are recording together from the podcast for it. I can't wait to see this. And I am an amateur t-shirt maker. Oh, no. So I wanted to give you, <laughs> I wanted to give you one of two existing t-shirts, Stuart. This says- Oh, I love it. I'm going to wear it tomorrow. Cashlack Memorial. So it is a, uh, I don't know if the size is right, but it probably is. Yeah, it looks good. And it is, uh, we could put a picture of that on, on, the, uh, on the website or in the show notes or whatever. Oh, right. Anyway, what I, I did want to give you that, Stuart, well, just as a thank you for uh, being, being a good co-worker, a good co-host, and kind of pushing me not to be lazy at work. And I feel like you're trying to get rid of me. I'm not... This feels like a eulogy. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, yeah I, I think loving husband fantastic boss I yeah. think trying to be serious on air is not working out but anyway no, Stuart not. thank you thank you very much Paul I'll, I, at some point I'll get you a T-shirt but you know it just well you're gonna see him again yeah it's gonna be a while till I see <laughs> oh, you guys I don't feel like that's strictly necessary we can still do this remotely I don't know that we have to have actual <laughs> FaceTime that's yeah funny. I I'm not gonna Paul yeah I'm not allergic to cats but I I don't have much interest of recording live from your home so I will probably just uh, record <laughs> record from my house. That's all right. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm allergic to visitors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. How are the movies going, Paul? Yeah, there's. I've had a, a long spell of mediocrity that uh, I'm still waiting to break. Mm. Well, this was a long one, so I don't know. Yeah, do you guys want to do, do any picks of the week tonight? or Paul, if you had anything prepared, that's fine. I, I think we can just pass on it tonight since we had such a long episode with Dr. Adler. Yeah, let's, let's not do the uh, picks of the week. I have nothing prepared. Pet a dog, hug your mom. Yeah. <laughs> Those things are good things to do. Okay. On this episode, we talked heart failure with Dr. Eric Adler. And the reason we wanted to do this, obviously, it's a very common diagnosis, but there were recent guidelines put out by the ACC and AHA. These were updates or a focused update to the 2013 guidelines. We will, of course, link to all these in the show notes, but we talked through some of the updates to the guidelines, and I think this will be very helpful, a lot of high-yield information here. Dr. Eric Adler is a cardiologist and an associate professor of medicine at UC San Diego. He is soon also to be professor. Soon to be professor. He is also the director of cardiac transplant and mechanical circulatory support at UCSD. Dr. Adler earned his medical degree from Boston University School of Medicine, completed a residency at the University of Washington School of Medicine, and a cardiology fellowship at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. He's board certified in advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology and cardiovascular disease. His interests are in the care of patients with advanced heart failure, 
mechanical circulatory support, and cardiac transplant. He has a strong interest in the appropriate use of palliation in heart failure, which we'll talk a little bit about the show on the show. And we are thrilled to have him on to talk to us about heart failure, mostly heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And hopefully we will be having him back in the future to talk about a little bit more advanced cases or advanced heart failure management. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, thanks, Matt. You're welcome, Stuart. Yes. Paul, you there with us? He's still with you. And also with us today is Dr. Eric Adler from University of California, San Diego. Hi, Dr. Adler. Hey, guys. And you preferred, should we call you Eric or do you want us to call you Dr. Adler? Up to you. Only my kids have to call me Dr. Adler. They <laughs> can <laughs> call, me, call uh, me Eric. It's the same for Paul. I might have to steal that. Yeah. I, my kids they are do not call you Dr. Dad. They're not showing me enough respect, actually, so maybe that would be a way around it. Is that why every single one of those artworks in the office says Dr. Dr. Dad? (laughs) Well, Eric, I'd like to ask you, this is a a question we always start off with. If you had to use a one-liner to describe yourself kind of the way we do in the hospital, what would it be? Sure. I'm a a 43-year-old cardiologist. I direct a heart transplant in LVAD. Uh, program here in San Diego, and I'm a father of, uh, I'm a husband and father of uh, two children, and uh, still love my job. What would you say, whether it's locally or nationally, what would you say you're best known for as a cardiologist? Well, I think my experience with advanced heart failure, I have a a particular uh, experience in the use of palliative care Hmm. for heart failure, and then I also... uh, have a some basic science interests in in molecular biology of heart failure. How did you get into the palliative care aspect of heart failure? Did you have any formal training for that, or is that just something you've kind of built a reputation for throughout your career? You know, it's a you know feel it's a bit of a story. But when I was training in cardiology, I trained at Mount Sinai with a woman who's essentially like the founder of the palliative care medicine field. Okay. And uh, I got a, I was a cardiologist and it was atypical, but I got a palliative care consult. It was a patient who uh, was always uh, coming back, readmitted over and over again. And this patient, no one could figure out why they were, she was readmitted so much. She would stop taking her medicines, but she didn't ever mm-hmm. want to go on hospital. She didn't want to pass and she wasn't ready to go. But now, you know, in our 15 minute visits, we never really could figure out why. And I got Diane to see the patient and her team. And she figured out that the patient son was had a life uh, sentence for committing murder. And she didn't want to die without seeing her son again. So Diane is this dynamo. She arranged with the warden to have the patient released to visit. The patient came and they had this hour visit together and they had this really emotional visit. And then he went back to jail and the patient went and left the hospital and then in fact did well for like another year. She actually got better on hospice, like without yeah, these recurrent readmissions, which we yeah. see which in retrospect, I've learned a lot. And so it just kind of opened my eyes to what palliative care can do. Right. And when I looked in the literature at the time, there were no articles on the topic of palliative care and cardiology that were reviewed in the mainstream journal. So I just took it upon myself to use that as an opportunity to work with Diane and, and leverage kind of her expertise to write 
a paper on palliative care and applying palliative care to cardiology and that was in circulation in like 2007. And that paper kind of all of a sudden after writing that paper, it helped uh, launch kind of me as someone who had, you know, kind of became a self-fulfilling prophecy for me where I now became someone with expertise in that field. And I encourage people to think about things that way. If you really are passionate about something, go about it. And then you, you kind of become the expert in it. In this right. case, there wasn't that many experts in that field. And from there, you know, it's just continue to grow and, and do more research and reviews and things on the topic. And now you can see the field itself is, is expanding a lot and yeah. more attention. So that's the story. Wow. That's a phenomenal story. Right. Holy cow. It's a, it's a really good story. What about, uh, are there any, any books or any, anything that you would recommend that us as physicians to glean some of that knowledge and insight that you've obtained throughout your life? I think one of the things that we struggle with as physicians, new graduates, uh, residents, or finishing residency, especially, and 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 as we develop our careers, is multitasking and being efficient. And so, outside of medicine, I've learned, you know, how how to balance my life outside of medicine. In medicine, there's a book uh, called Deep Work by Cal Newport, and it just talks about when you're doing something, being a hundred percent engaged in what you're doing, whatever that may be, um, and how to be efficient in your day, calendaring better, scheduling better, kind of taking, uh, taking control of your schedule, um, how to uh, avoid distractions, things like that. I think that book has really influenced me a lot over the last few years um, and allowed me to multitask uh, much more efficiently. I actually just read that book two months ago, and it has been huge for me because I was struggling with certainly how to get, we have a weekly podcast trying Mm -hmm. to get these out, and I was just kind of the way that I schedule my time and the way that I think about my work, I think it's been better for me and my family using some of the things that I learned from that book. It's a a really good book, and that guy, uh, he kind of talks about how it helped his career trajectory where he was actually spending more time with his family, but being more productive. He was just being so thoughtful about the way he was doing it. So I've got to read this book. now. I highly recommend it. Uh, Great recommendation. Thank you. One of the last questions I'd like to ask you here in this uh, getting to know you section, what is some of the best advice you've, you've gotten in your career as a teacher? I would say one of the best advice I've gotten as a teacher and teaching students and, and residents specifically is sitting down and engaging our patients. And in other words, I think we spend too much time standing over our patients, trying to get out of the room, trying to get out of the patient, out of the encounter. And if you can just sit down and engage as a provider um, and establish that relationship, you can get so much more out of the encounter. And you can also um, establish a kind of a truly bi-directional empathetic relationship where the patient knows that you you care about them and you have their best interests and and you establish that kind of relationship that allows you then to provide the best medical care. That's tremendous advice. I think we've talked about this before on the show too, where I think even just that very act of sitting and engaging and just having the conversation can often be as therapeutic as anything else you do sort of after the conversation itself. So I, I think that's fantastic right. advice. You know, I purposely tell people that because it's a physical action that you can think in your head to mm-hmm. do, but then it actually uh, ends up, the result is way beyond the actual act of doing it. 
right? Um, but it's just an easy checklist in your head to do. If I, re- if I recall correctly, there's actually studies that look at uh, getting at or below the patient's eye level and shows that they're the, the, just the tenor in the room is uh, reduced and their, their ability to recall information from that interaction is improved. And I think their perceived, the perceived time that you've spent with the patient is, is greater, even if you spend the same amount of time if exactly. you're sitting with them versus if you're standing. And that's something I tell the residents whenever I round with them. Yeah, you try not to sit down in a, in a you know, in a diaper or a bed sheet when you can. <laughs> <laughs> well, Eric, I wanted to start off and uh, something that we try to do, sometimes better than others, is kind of have a case to touch on as we're talking about a topic, something like heart failure, and and trying to pull out some teaching points and clinical pearls for, for the audience from this. Uh, so I had one. Uh, this is a fake case from Cashlack Memorial Hospital, but probably one that sounds similar to something we've all seen. So it, let's say a couple weeks ago, I saw a 79-year-old guy. He had high blood pressure. He was obese. He had some osteoarthritis in his knees and low back pain. He's taking Celebrex despite me trying to get him off Celebrex because he just feels he can't live without it. And he now presents with new onset dyspnea and bilateral lower extremity edema. So I wanted to try to tie this case to the the new heart failure guidelines or mm. the update to the 2013 ACC AHA guidelines that was, was just published uh, here in 2017. So when you start to think about heart failure, how should our audience kind of frame it? How, how do you like to classify it and what, what terms should we be thinking about? Sure. So I think I, I generally divide it as it's commonly divided between heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And by that, I'm essentially I'm referring to the, you know, the, the ejection fraction being, in my mind, you know, there's, there's something below 40 then between 40 and 50 and then above 50 is that kind of how I think of it in my head. But, um, I think that truly, uh, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction may be a term that's overused and actually has done, uh, some harm to the right. field of heart failure in general, mm-hmm. and that it's a catch all for a lot of different things. And, prevents us from treating specific syndromes. So I like to understand the pathophysiology of the heart failure preserved ejection fraction, whether that's due to pulmonary hypertension or truly from uh, diastolic heart failure, from valvular disease, et cetera. So it ends up being a catch-all and that might not be the best. Um, I always think about the classes and stages of heart failure. So it's a functional class one through four, which I think most people are familiar with. The caveat to the classes is that they're dynamic that, you know, someone could be class four when they come in the hospital and they're class one when they leave the hospital. Mm-hmm. So that makes it a little bit difficult, um, certainly to perform clinical trials because you actually end up with a mishmash of patients. But beyond that, it's hard to really make any firm prognostic statements about someone who whose classes change within a few days. That's why the stages of heart failure are, part, are important. And the stages, just to remind the audience, are A through D. A is someone who's at risk for heart failure. B is someone who has a reduced uh, cardiac function but uh, does not have symptoms of heart failure. Stage C, which this patient would now be, is someone with symptoms of heart failure. And stage D is someone with symptoms essentially at rest or you know failure to respond to therapies for stage C heart failure. Um, 
the difference between the classes and the stages is the stages uh, don't ever change. So it's kind of modeled after cancer. Once they're a certain stage, they stay that stage. Can I just to interrupt here? The other terms that that are commonly thrown around: cardiomyopathy, non-ischemic, ischemic, dilated. How how important are those terms? And 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 if you were speaking to another cardiologist, or if we're calling a cardiologist for a consult, how do you want us to report the heart failure to you? I think it's really important to understand the the mechanism for the heart failure, especially up front. So knowing if this is ischemic or non-ischemic disease is important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, you know, we think about, when we talk about cardiomyopathies, we talk about dilated cardiomyopathy, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, constri- you know, constrictive cardiomyopathies, res- I mean, restrictive diseases, all these different things. That That's also important um, in that, you know, the treatments are going to be dramatically different. So I like to know the etiology of disease. And then I li- I do like to know if it's dilated or not dilated. So all of those things can be useful uh, to me because that's going to change my um, my management. So let's say, so now we kind of know how to classify heart failure. Let's say that this, back to our case here, this, this 79-year-old guy, I'm seeing him in clinic. I examine him. He's got some crackles. He has some pitting edema to his shins bilaterally. I decide I think this might be heart failure. I want to get an echo. The new the new guidelines talk about using BNP or pro BNP. And I've heard a lot of mixed things like internists would say say to me in training, you don't need a BNP to diagnose heart failure. You do that as an internist. So can you tell us what's the the recent evidence is kind of pointing to and, and how we should be using BNP, let's say for a patient with new new shortness of breath or newly suspected heart failure? I think it depends a little bit on your comfort level. You know, I'm not, not to, in no way do I mean this to be insulting anyone, but remember the gold standard in the breathing not proper trials of, uh, was a cardiologist reviewing the case. So if a, you know, if a, if the gold standard is a cardiologist and I'm a cardiologist, if the test doesn't become so useful in the diagnosis, is that does that make sense? Right. But, exactly. Um, but that being said, there's a lot of times when I'm not sure of my diagnosis, and um, and a BNP can be useful. And specifically, the way when I'm you know on presentation, it's useful in distingu- distinguishing specifically cardiac and non-cardiac uh, causes. So a very low BNP in a non-obese patient makes me think that. Um, you know, maybe I have this wrong. So I think it's useful from that, that standpoint. One of the things that you left out in your physical exam, which I think is, which most most of me, my colleagues and I uh, re- rely on more is, is neck veins. And right. um, so I, I feel my, because I do this every day and it's all I do, I can, I feel like my, my sensitivity, my physical exam is good enough that most of the time I, by looking at neck veins, I can tell, um, and then a quick cardiac exam, I can tell with some diagnostic certitude whether this is, whether the BNP is going to be elevated or not, because there's not too many things that will raise the neck veins that, that won't, won't raise the BNP, if that makes sense. Oh, can I stop you? I was, maybe this is where you're going with this, but you, you brought it up, the neck vein exam. (laughs) It's, it's a tough exam. Can you tell us 
can you tell us how you think about it or how you set the patient up sure. and what is a positive test? Yeah, yeah. I think, and this is reflected, you know, uh, in guidelines and on the board for sure. But the way to do that test, the way I simplify it is I sit the patient straight up at 90 degrees. I perform a paddle reflex. And if I see anything above the clavicle, I consider that a positive test because that's okay. above 10 centimeters of mercury. Um, I will say, you know, I think that it makes it almost more digital. Is it up or down as opposed to saying it's 12 and not 13, right. you know, all these different things. And I think that's now the consensus as to the best way to, to do it. That's brilliant. You're going to kill my medical students to pull out their uh, the ruler. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. I just want to know, is it up or down? And certainly yeah. if I see the patient every day, I can compare, you know, my mind I'm comparing, is it up or down in them? Um, but I think that makes it, that standardizes the test more. The, you know, the advantage of a BNP is that, it, you know, that that's the gold standard of, you know, everyone will have the same, you know, all the doctors in the seeing this patient are going to see the same BNP, whereas right. three doctors, some who might not do it as much as me might see the neck veins are up or not. So that's the advantage is it's better on the phone for me to hear the BNP than to hear the emergency room doctor tell me about the, <laughs> the neck veins yeah. that they never looked at, you know? <laughs> so in that case, the BNP is, or pro BNP. And I think they're probably equivocal in my mind. The pro BNP, I think more of a hemoglobin A1C takes longer to go down and up. I was just going to say, while we're on the subject of, of the biomarkers and the BNP, I, one of the things that the guidelines mention and maybe advocates for, if I'm reading them right, is actually using the BNP as a screening tool for patients at risk for heart failure to prevent um, the development of systolic dysfunction. I wonder if you wouldn't mind speaking to that a little bit, if you had any thoughts. I think if you do it across the board and patient pop, you know, widely in your in your clinic population, it wouldn't be useful because it wouldn't be positive enough. But I think in people with stage A, B, you know, you think about someone in, you know, I'm talking practically outside of the board, but someone yeah. was, you know, why, one of the things that's frustrating, what's the difference between stage B heart failure and stage C heart failure or class one heart failure and three? Like the difference is how much does a patient complain? You know, you may have... <laughs> One veteran that, that sits on the couch and, and all day and does not complain about anything ever. And then you have a person that's used to doing, you know, yoga four times a week that complains, you know, if they can't can't run the triathlon that they used to. So the BNP kind of takes that away. And you may want to use beta blockers in the person that's not complaining, even though, you know, or be more aggressive, even though mm -hmm. they're, they're a stage B patient. A, a good example I take care of a fair amount of patients with Duchenne. They're never going to, uh, you know, they're not, they're not going to get the symptoms because there are a lot of them are, are in a wheelchair and confined. So they don't have exertional symptoms. So I use uh, biomarkers a lot in that patient population to decide how to, how to use my neurohormonal uh, therapy. So on, on that topic as well, what about during discharge? What do you think about the utility of using the the BNP to establish like a post-discharge prognosis? I think that's great. So that's where I, I was going to say, I think that's where it really comes in. Because I think what it does, it does two things. One, it may, one of the things I struggle with is talking to, uh, we have these kind of dichotomous pressures between uh, wanting to keep the patient out of, from being readmitted versus wanting to discharge them as soon as possible. You know, that's basically the story of inpatient heart failure right now. Um, and uh, so the BNP can help you because I think you want to drive the BNP down. If the BNP hasn't moved, it, it's likely the patient's going to be readmitted. Um, 
And for me, if the BNP remains elevated, you know, several times above normal, those are patients that I think are optimally medically managed and their BNP is still elevated. That's someone I'm more worried about. That is this patient with advanced heart failure that might need advanced therapies. Do they need, you know, are they going to be someone that needs a transplant? To be honest, you know, the person that always has the sky high BNP, you know, one of my pet peeves is the residents will say to me, well, the BNP is always elevated. And I remind them the BNP is always elevated until it's not, until the patient is dead, basically, you know. Um, so, you know, it's like their blood pressure is always 60. And I say, no, no, <laughs> you know. Um, so I think it's useful. A lot of times we don't know when to say to send a person home. And it's mm -hmm. difficult and neck veins aren't always perfect and the patient's always perfect. So it is useful to see if it's moving in, in, in theory and, and sometimes in and, and often in practice, um, it should be checked at the time of discharge for prognostication. And uh, I, I have one comment and then I wanted to jump back just to make sure that the, we, we get, get to the basics of the BNP. But the, the comment would be, I think if, if someone's at their dry weight and you're discharging them, you write down this is they're being discharged at this weight. We're considering their dry weight and their BNP or pro BNP is this number. I guess BNP you said is would probably be the one to change more quickly. So maybe we should be using that. But th then we can we can have those two numbers on the discharge it might help our colleagues down the line. Just something I was thinking of as you were saying that. Yeah, I think so. And can you give us just first the the normal values of BNP and pro BNP? or what you think of as being elevated, and then some of the things we need to think about for patient-specific factors that would modify that. Like you mentioned, obesity is associated with a lower BNP. Yeah, you know, I think the difference between a BNP, you know, one quick thing for a BNP and a pro-BNP pro is just uh, adding a zero at the end of the BNP level, but it's not quite, <laughs> uh, quite that. But, you know, it depends on your your institute, you know, I always say, you know, check on your institution for levels, but certainly a BNP be, uh, below a hundred um, is is probably okay. Pro BNP is above a uh, thousand. That's when I start to uh, generally, uh, you know, I'm starting to get concerned. You know, five hundred to a thousand may be uh, somewhat abnormal. That's amongst my patient population. Now, amongst a healthy, you know, if you're using it for screening, it's probably much lower, like 40 for BNP and 100, 125 for pro-BNP. Again, I would probably want to know my my lab and what, what, what they're counting as normal and abnormal. And uh, we can, I can put one of those lists in the show notes. There's, there's, a, there's lists of things that will either raise BNP or pro-BNP oh, up or down. Oh, yes. I didn't, I didn't get to that. I mean, the main thing for me is obesity is probably makes it uh, less sensitive. Mm -hmm. uh, so in general, we're a little bit more, it's a, it's not as reliable in the obese population. And then there's some impact of renal function and other things, but that's the, the, the other thing that the big caveat to keep in mind is the use of uh, Entresto or Sacubitrol, I should say, uh, in which patients will have, you'll have to use a pro BNP because BNP will be elevated. Okay. And that's uh, true of the drug Neseratide, which is not as commonly used hmm. anymore. To jump back, so let's say this this 79-year-old guy, we thought he had heart failure. Um, we get his BNP, despite him, him being obese, it's still elevated. And let's say his echo returns with an EF of 35% and global hypokinesis. 
I wanted to get into a little bit of how you counsel patients because a lot of us will be diagnosing new heart failure and having to counsel patients on what sort of lifestyle things, what is going to change for this guy. Mm-hmm. So what what sort of talk do you give to patients or you or, or what do your does your staff give to patients if you're not doing it yourself? And I might ask, um, if you don't mind, just how do you actually describe what heart failure is to patients? Because I feel I, I deal with a patient population that has a fair amount of low health literacy. So just in terms of even explaining what's going on can sometimes be challenging. So I wonder just if you could also just explain how your, your approach to explaining what's going on to the patient as well. Yeah, you know, uh, this requires time. And that's one of the things often in these 10, you know, 10 minute visits, it's not a good 10 minute visit patient, right? Or, you know, in the hospital, you're seeing, you know, 20, 30 patients, this is challenging, because you're going to have to spend some time doing this. And it's going to be a sit down conversation, as we alluded to earlier, especially. Um, In terms of describing heart failure, I usually describe it as an inability for the of the heart to do its job. And the job is really twofold. One is to provide blood to the tissues. And two, it's to uncongest, which is a little bit more complicated to explain to patients, but to remove the blood from tissues like the lungs and this and extracellular space. I usually don't use that with patients, but from the skin to try to explain why their symptoms are what their symptoms are, that the, the heart is not, rem, you know, removing the blood and pushing the blood to the kidneys. That's generally how I describe it to patients. It's a, it's a tough one. You know, it's not an easy definition even to provide to, you know, to a, a, a classroom of medical students. But generally, I say, you know, it's an ability to, of the heart to provide its, uh, uh, to fulfill its metabolic demands uh, of the body. Um, and when I talk to patients, you know, it surprises me because the, there's a very low li- health literacy on heart failure specifically. Like people know what a heart attack is. People know what cancer is. When you say heart failure, it's very confusing for patients and we can't assume they really under uh, stand it. You know, you'll tell patients they have, uh, you know, actinic keratosis, like a skin cancer, and you tell them that they'll have, you know, cl- you know, their EF is 10, and they're much more worried about the, the actinic keratosis, you know? Sure. They just haven't heard about this before. And they don't realize that, you know, one of the things I talk to them, that this is a serious disease, that once you have an EF of 35, your chances of dying from heart failure are much, are higher than dying with heart failure. That's one simple way of thinking about that this is something that we have to address in terms of you know diet fluid restriction sodium intake you know i generally counsel patients to have less than two liters of fluid and two two grams of salt a day and then i'll i i spend you know my either myself or i have a great um uh, team of heart failure pharmacists i'm spoiled and and physician assistants but we'll spend a fair amount of time going through what that means, making sure that the patients understand it. We have a little booklet that we give to patients and we try to show them how to read labels. We try to show them, uh, counsel them on paying attention to how they feel after they have that salty meal, you know, cause they might not notice it right away, but trying to show some cause and effect, uh, from what they've done to, to try to get them to have buy-in to reducing salt. Cause remember they're all salt avid. They want to eat salt. Um, because of the heart failure, uh, they're not getting enough blood to their kidneys, so their kidneys think they're dehydrated. That's how I explain it to the patients. So they're craving salt, and in fact, it's detrimental for them. So I do fair, uh, spend a fair amount of time. I'm also cognizant that despite 
best efforts, our patients aren't always going to be able to do this because they don't have the resources. Um, you know, they have they don't have enough money to buy the food they buy comes in bags and cans and etc. And you know, we can you know put all the blame we want on the patient, but uh, I don't think that's always fair. Um, when you know, I'm sitting, you know, I walk in and dust, you know make sure to wash the, the Cheeto uh, spray off my hands before I go in the room and then tell them uh, not to have a low salt. Uh, you know, they can't have any salt and start yelling about it. It's a little, it's a little ridiculous. Yeah. I always feel bad when I like break down and go to a vending machine and uh, it's like, right. It's like a walk of shame in front of the patient waiting room. <laughs> yeah. I had a patient like run into me in the cafeteria and I had this bowl of French fries. I just felt like the worst guy. <laughs> <laughs> the salt, the fat, everything. Excellent. Okay. That, so that's very helpful. Thank you. And, and you mentioned exercise a little bit. Is it, are, are you routinely using for, for new diagnosis of heart failure? Are you using exercise prescriptions or are you sending people through cardiac rehab as part of their initial, you know, counseling and uh, treatment? Absolutely. And that, you know, that's been a change from in the last 10 or 15 years. But, you know, I think patients need to do something for themselves. And it, it's very empowering to get them into rehab and, and then have them go on to an exercise program because everyone's going to feel better. You know, every patient feels better with exercise if they're committed to doing it. And if they're not committed to doing it, it kind of shows you their buy into their own disease. And so, um, so I, I, try to when now that medicare approved you know is is um is paying for uh rehab i will try to get patients to do rehab i think rehab is especially useful because it just gives patients comfort that they're being supervised and then they can kind of graduate from rehab and and do something on their own but i i i encourage everyone you know they say well i can only walk 10 steps so i say okay walk those 10 steps and keep and write it down let me know and then hopefully by next week you're walking 20 steps but I think it makes every patient better. So I'm pretty aggressive. I don't write an actual prescription on a piece of paper per se, but I will send a cardiac rehab. So taking just a brief step back, so when this patient is initially diagnosed with uh, heart failure, what additional routine testing would you recommend in the outpatient setting? So if we're looking at this specific patient, the 79-year-old with hypertension and obesity, they need, we need to evaluate whether they have um, coronary artery disease because that's going to be the most likely cause of the low ejection fraction, and that's something uh, treatable. So it may, that may be some kind of uh, stress testing where you could argue that this person, depending on some other things, that the pretest probability is so high that you could even, you know, you could argue to go right to uh, angiogram. But you need to evaluate the, the coronary arteries that's going to be more than 50% of the time the root cause of disease. And that's something you could intervene on. It might be someone that needs a, a cabbage. I'll look for the other causes. You know, um, I've had 79-year-olds who are still using meth. God bless them for still using yeah. methamphetamine at that advanced age. <laughs> but uh, I've been surprised. So, you know, I'll talk to patients about, you know, alcohol and drugs. I will screen them for thyroid disease and HIV and some of uh, the, uh, you know, I won't go through the entire list of things. I'm just trying to think about the, the things that are missed or common. One of the things that, and it's less common in the low ejection fraction patient, but more common in the preserved is looking for amyloid disease. So that is way more prevalent than uh, most of us recognize. So looking at the voltage on the EKG, looking at the echo, 
seeing if there's evidence of amyloid um, because we're realizing that's probably a significant portion of the, especially the HEFPEF, but sometimes the HEFREF uh, population. And the, the echo, is this the, is this the starry sky or am I thinking of something else? I Yeah. I mean, to be honest, all you're really looking for is a thick ventricle in the absence of hypertension. So a uh-huh. patient who has a ventricle that looks like they've been hypertensive their whole life, and then they say to you, no, I've never had heart, a hypertension, and they're not hypertensive. You don't, you know, you don't, and then their EKG doesn't show hypertrophy. The EKG is not perfect. Like you can, you know, it's not perfectly sensitive, but that discordance between the echo and EKG is pretty good. Not perfect again, but those, all, all those things lead me to be thinking about amyloid disease. I do want to get into talking about the medications. We've kind of counseled this guy. So we have our 79-year-old guy. He's obese. He's got this new low EF. Let's say he comes back. Somehow he's non-ischemic. And uh, and now we're going to be starting him on now we're going to be starting him on medical therapy for his heart failure. Where do you start here? Let's say that before he was only on lisinopril, he wasn't taking anything else. So what are what are the next agents you're going to reach for, and and kind of how how quickly do you titrate up the medications? This is a great question, and I think you you may find for heart failure quote unquote experts doing things different ways. My my personal approach is I do start with something to reduce afterload, like lisinopril, because I think that that's a drug that's not going to cause a, uh, it's rare to cause a patient to feel worse. They'll probably feel better. And it allows me to kind of show to the patient that I'm going to get them feeling better. And the reason I say that is the next drug that this patient should be on after being on lisinopril is a beta, is a beta blocker. And uh, whether that's Coreg, uh, metoprolol or bisoprolol, those would be the metoprolol XL or toprol or bisoprolol, those would be the three drugs that have proven efficacy in heart failure. I don't start those first because I generally, you know, in, in a patient, especially a congested patient, they're going to feel worse those first few days. And if you don't have a good relationship with the patient and they take a pill for four days and they feel worse, they may say, oh, this doctor doesn't know what he's talking about. And you've lost that opportunity to get them better. So I start with the lisinopril. In this patient, I would add a low dose of a beta blocker, and I would like to see I like to see patients who have heart failure that for once a week for the first four weeks that I've met them, and I'm increasing drugs uh, during that time period each time, and try not to overload them too much. A lot of these patients, like this guy, go from no medications to eight or nine medications a day, right. so I, I'm cognizant of that. And when would you add in a diuretic? This guy has some lower extremity edema. Let's say he had some. Uh, at, you you tested his JVD at ninety degrees and it was maybe two centimeters above the clavicle. Would you have started him on the diuretic at that visit as well? He would certainly be on it. I mean, you know, the devil's in the details. Depends on his blood pressure, his granny, and all these other things. Someone like this would be on. To be to be honest, he would be on a diuretic before he would be. You know, twenty is a a, a pretty high dose of of acinabir to be on at this point. By the time my patients are on five or 10 of lisinopril there. And if he's wet, he would be on a, a, a diuretic dose, you know, a, probably Lasix, Bumex or Torsamide. And then he would be on uh, a beta blocker, be that Coreg, Bisoprolol or Metoprolol. But if he's wet, I know he's going to get, he's not going to have mortality benefit, but he's going to have symptom improvement with a diuretic. So he's certainly going to be on a diuretic. And when you mentioned the diuretics, we were talking about this, Stuart and I, a little bit in pre-recording. Mm-hmm. We've I guess some of the things we've heard around Cashlac, people are moving more towards torsamide. 
because let's say cost is not a factor. So their choice is between furosemide, torsemide, bumetanide, and they're they're going for torsemide more often. Do you have a preference, and and why do you why do you like that? If so, the sicker patients who are more congested, they don't absorb uh, Lasix as well as they they will torsemide okay. or Bumex. So in our practice, and that's you know that's in the guidelines too. So most patients are going to be fine on Lasix, but your more advanced patients. Let's say someone who's requiring 80 milligrams of Lasix or so, then then I w- will usually switch them over and I'll see them uh, having having a benefit. And I'm reminding my patients to take that medicine on an empty stomach, and just doing that, I'm you, you'll see a big improvement. So l- l- let's just say all things being equal, would torsamide is it just in general better medication than furosemide? No, I mean it's absorbed. I don't know if it better is the is the right way to do it. It's, I think if a patient responds, they respond. It's for patients in my mind. It's patients who are not responding well to Lasix. But I think if they're, you know, if a patient makes, th- you know, the Lasix lasts six hours, right? That's the mm-hmm. name. That's why it's called Lasix. If if they make two liters of urine in that six hours, whatever dose it is, that was the right dose of diuretic they got. But if they're not doing that with 80 milligrams of Lasix, then I'm going to try torsamide. But if they're doing yeah. that with Lasix and it's cheaper, I would do Lasix. If it's the same price, you could, you know, it, it depends on pill burn. It probably doesn't make a difference. Usually I'm finding in the more advanced patients, uh, they're going to do it. And a general rule of, you know, a, a per, I'm not sure if this is a wooden pearl or if this is a real pearl, but this works for me as I double the BUN and that gives me roughly a sense of how much Lasix the patient's going to require. <laughs> It's a house of God rule, isn't it? The house of God is BUN plus age. Yes. Oh, forgive me. And the Joel, yeah. the Joel Toff rule creatinine is... Creatinine times 20. Yeah, creatinine times yeah. 20. So there you go. These are all... It's it's good to have some tools or some, some places, some yeah. starting points. Basically, flip a coin half the time. <laughs> I've, I've had some success with all of them, but I usually go to the house of God last because it usually is a scary looking number when I'm dealing with like a, a 75 or 80 year old. Well, you know, in all seriousness, what those trials and some other trials have shown us is that we generally underuse the dose. Yeah. And we're usually wrong in the beginning, especially we generally are afraid. Well, you know, most patients don't get hyper hypotensive from the appropriate dose of diuretic. And if they really do in that rare case, you can give them fluid back. But patients right. end up staying an extra day or two because you haven't given them enough diuretic. And some are actually going to get intubated because you haven't. So I like to overshoot in the beginning and then uh, scale back. Yep. And all these patients in theory, you know, di- the only diuretic that improves mortality is, is an aldosterone antagonist. Um, so those, you know, most of my patients are, are on an aldosterone antagonist, whether it's, uh, uh you know, usually spironolactone or a plerinone, um, because you're getting actual mortality benefit. So that would be kind of to go back to our order. So you're starting probably an ACE inhibitor titrating up, Adding a beta blocker, the diuretic's going to be in there if if they have volume overload, and the aldosterone antagonist would that probably be your next agent you're going to reach for? Exactly, that's right. You know, and I'm cognizant of pill burden, and each patient is different. And if I'm a patient who is non-compliant, or I'm just getting to know, you know, like I like to say, we're just starting to date. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be nervous about uh, spironolactone because if they don't show up again. Their next visit could be to the ER with a potassium of six. So I like to make sure that the patient's coming back and reliably checking labs and stuff um, because you can do harm with 
as we saw in the registries after the the trials, which showed benefit of aldosterone antagonists, we actually just had this big spike in referrals to the emergency room for hyperkalemia. So, um, so that's why I'm use that drug with caution. And, and we've talked about that drug a couple times on the show in the recent past, and in general. The, the wisdom has been start at like 12.5 and then yeah. you, you go up slowly by 12.5 and you check, the, you check the renal function a week later if they have kidney disease and you can do a month if they're perfectly healthy. But these patients with heart failure, I would do the week. Right. That would be my yeah. recommendation. You'll, you never forget the person that died because you did something, right? Right. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, pretty, yeah, I'm pretty on top of when I start a drug checking uh, most of these drugs, ACE inhibitors, anything, I'm checking them in a week. And some of the other... Oh, did go did, ahead, you, did you want to talk about Entresto at all? I do want to talk about Entresto. And uh, this is... So there's the the new... The Paradigm HF trial was, I believe, 2014. But these guidelines recently came out and they're giving a class one recommendation to the Sacubitril-Valsartan combination pill based on the results of this trial. Eric, I was wondering if you could give our audience maybe like a brief summary of that trial and why it made this medication, which is branded as Entresto, why it gave it this class one, class one evidence level B right. from randomized control, controlled evidence, right? That's yeah. the... Uh, I'm looking at it here. Yeah, that's correct. This trial was the first heart failure, positive heart failure trial that we had in a long time. So I think everyone was so excited about the win. <laughs> That they've, they've, uh, you know, you can see the rapid adoption of of the drug, but in in reality, this is a trial that was mostly consisted of uh, New York Heart Association two patients. Some I think 70 percent New York Heart Association two, some three, randomized to enalapril or sacubitril valsartan, which is a combination of a of a ARB and uh, essentially. A uh, the sacubitril part of the drug is a neprilysin inhibitor prevents a breakdown of brain natriuretic peptide. So randomizing to these these two drugs, and you know it was a very large study, eight or nine thousand. It was the largest uh, heart failure trial ever, and what it showed is actually showed you know symptomatic benefit, mortality benefit, heart failure, you know hospitalization benefit. So kind of across the board win. And um, because, all right, you know, it was a it was a composite endpoint in the end of CV death and hospitalization, but nonetheless, it was a striking benefit to the point where, even though it was one trial, this was a huge debate. The trial was large enough; they said that we need to make this a class one guideline and not wait for more trials. So that's the the strength of the trial and why you're seeing heart failure cardiologists uh, so uh, excited about it. The truth is that the, the caveats of the trial, one is there was a, a, a blind run-in period for um, six weeks or so where you were put on the Entresto. And if you're on the Entresto and your blood pressure dropped, you weren't included in the trial. And what we find in practice is a lot of people's blood pressure dropped with this drug. So you exclude, you know, it wasn't, you know, it, in my mind, it wasn't a true intention. If you're going to if you were going to have issues with the trial, it wasn't done with a true intention to treat I strategy. See. Yeah. So we okay. don't know all these patients that dropped out. So that's my one caveat. So the the the, the takeaway point for me is this drug uh, makes people feel better, 
probably makes them feel longer, uh, live longer than standard therapy in symptomatic patients. But it also potently lowers blood pressure. So my patients whose blood pressure, systolic blood pressures are below 100, I'm very cautious yeah. about it. And I'm usually proactive. It has a diuretic effect. So I'm proactive about lowering or stopping their diuretic when I start that drug. Can I ask? Go ahead. Uh, just in terms of practically speaking, how to start this medication, because the guidelines are like if the patient is symptomatic and already on an ACE or an ARB, then sort of swap it out with uh, the angiotensin neprilysin inhibitor. But if, if the patient's not on those medications, you know, when should you think about this? I Just practically speaking, how do you go about actually introducing this into the regimen? So I use it in patients that are, you know, I, it's a simple one for me. If they're, you know, how do you feel today? Good or bad? I still feel bad. They're on an ACE or an R. And I say, well, this is another drug in my armamentarium. Then how do I, how do I do it? If they're on an ACE inhibitor, you have to make sure that they don't take that ACE inhibitor for 24 to 36 hours before they start in Tresto because their blood pressure will drop right. precipitously. But they, so they need that washout. They don't need the washout with the ARB because they're getting the ARB with the Entresto. I start at the lowest dose on everyone, this, the 24, 26, or, you know, whatever, 24, 9, 25, whatever it is, and work pretty slowly to get up to 99, 101, or whatever the split is. So, but I start, I start low and I go slow because of the, you know, I've had a few patients come in. Like I feel a little dizzy, and their blood pressure is like sixty over forty in clinic. <laughs> You're calling nine one one, and right. um, you know all that all that stuff. So that's that's my general advice on that. And like I said, I tend to proactively lower the diuretic, and that's a way to help me get patients on therapy sooner. Yeah, and this the the things that you mentioned about this study that it it's not truly an intention to treat is that that's what just jumped out to me. I mean, I I've reviewed a lot of studies in the past few years and I, this is, I haven't seen many yeah. that do this where they have this first, everybody took an allopril and then everybody took uh, the Entresto just to make sure that they tolerated it. And there was almost a thousand patients that discontinued in both, in both of those arms up front. And then they, so they started with like 10,500 patients and they ended up with 88,442 that were finally randomized. So it is, and, and the other thing that I saw kind of just buried in the, in the study there was that they, they started with an EF of 40% or less, and then they changed it to 35% or less by amendment to the protocol at a later date, which to me was like, why did they do that? Was that, did they think they needed more severe cases to to get a, a significant result? So, and it was stopped early. Yeah, I'll say that this is maybe one of the best from a, a, a planning standpoint. I think this is like clinical design, you know, chess for masters. Like they looked at all the, you know, remember there were negative trials beforehand with just hmm. the neprilysin inhibitors. So they knew, you know, and there were neg- they knew that the ACE neprilysin inhibitor increased cough. They, you know, every part of this trial was designed to have a positive trial. So they put a lot of thought into it and then modified it on those things. So it was a home run trial. And a lot of that is kudos to the designers. They spent a lot of time. They knew they needed this blind, you know, get rid of your hyper hypotensive patients. And that's OK. In practice now, I just don't you know, it's not for those patients. And right. it ends up you, know, you get used to it. And so you don't give it to your patient. It's a great drug. If, if their blood pressure is 140 over 100, conversely, this is a great drug. You're going to peel off two or three other drugs, mm. you know, 
I do want to ask a, about a couple other things that I think would be helpful, well, certainly to me, but also to the audience. There's some medications that you probably want to avoid in heart failure. These are listed in the in the guidelines, at least the 2013 full version. And they're saying uh, they list calcium channel blockers as being not, you know, not recommended in heart failure. Can you talk about the specific calcium channel blockers that should be avoided? Are there certain other ones that are safe? I mean, the only safe one really is amlodipine. That's just probably the simplest way to think about it. Um, and so we, you know, we use some amlodipine, but keep in mind a side effect of amlodipine is peripheral right. edema. So it's not a great drug. Uh, I worry about diltiazem, and I see it a lot, you know, in the emergency room. Someone comes in with a low EF and AFib, and they give them a diltiazem drip. That's great for my business, but it's it, it <laughs> a lot of people in the decompensated heart failure. And so we don't use diltiazem and that, that class of drugs in, in, in our patients. Can you tell the audience why these patients shouldn't take NSAIDs? Sure. And I noticed you threw, threw in a softball there by saying this guy was on Celebrex. Is that right? Well, yeah, this is, uh, I, I have, I have a couple patients that are just like, uh, for they, there's many reasons they shouldn't be on, uh, an NSAID, but they, they're just like, a, they, they just will refuse to come off of, of them and they've been getting them for years. No, it's, it's challenging because they, that drug actually makes them feel better. Whereas the beta blocker in the short term doesn't, you know, but it just causes them to, re, you know, they retain fluid. It's bad on their kidneys. And we see it. We see patients will, their heart failure will get bad, get worse, you know, when they, especially if they load up on naproxen or something after an injury or something, that's not an uncommon cause of decompensated uh, heart failure. You know, on top of it, a lot of these patients get gout. And so mm-hmm. then they're using their NSAIDs to treat the gout. And once you diagnose them appropriately with gout and not other kind of osteoarthritis, and you treat the gout with, you know, low-dose colchicine, which we use, even though, you know, it's not in the guidelines, but very low-dose, like 0.3 or something, you could get away with and then improve their arthritis and you get them off the NSAID. Any any specific supplements or other over-the-counter medications that heart failure patients need to be wary of that you're you're seeing complications from? Yeah, methamphetamines and cocaine. <laughs> that's, uh, that's okay. good to avoid. <laughs> No, I'm, I mean, I'm, you know, that's a common problem. But the other thing is the salt, the low salt replacement spices that people mm-hmm. use often have high potassium. Right. So we, we want to find out about all the things that patients are taking. And for, for this guy, uh, let's say that we have him kind of optimized as, as best we can. He's on, an, let's say he's on an ACE inhibitor. He's on a beta blocker, diuretic, aldosterone antagonist, and... Is there any point where you think about adding digoxin anymore? Is that kind of out of favor in your mind? I, I still see some patients come through on it, and maybe that's because they have AFib and they were trying to get get control of that. It's amazing, but that's still quite controversial, believe it or not, amongst uh, heart failure physicians. I think that for me, I use digoxin in, in two, two specific uh, situations. One is patients who have atrial fibrillation and rapid re- uh, ventricular response who are elderly, who are not very active, like the nursing home patient or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think it can be a great drug at low doses. And then in the patient that I've kind of tried everything else, but who is not really a candidate for advanced therapies like Alvad and transplant, but I've kind of thrown the book at them, I'll try digoxin, knowing that it may provide some symptomatic benefit, but it's not, you know, not going to cure. 
I do have colleagues who are heart failure cardiologists who use a lot more digoxin than I do. I just think about pill burden, and we've already talked about six or seven medicines that provide a mortality benefit, and digoxin does not provide mortality benefit, so that's why I reached to it later uh, than most. And it has a, a low, you know, the therapeutic to toxic ratio is pretty s- small, so um, so that's why I'm also concerned. I mean, I, I could ask you about heart failure all yeah. day, but I, I think we need to sort of start wrapping up here. One last thing I wanted to highlight for the audience that I that I noticed from the guidelines, they're, they're recommending a blood pressure target in heart failure of less than 130 over 80. And when I kind of read into it a little more, it looks like they're they're pointing to the sprint trial for that. And they're, they're not going, because in the sprint trial, they didn't get people less than 120 for their systolic blood pressure but they got people less than 130 seem to do better. I, I think that's kind of why they were set, settling on that number. Is that correct? And, or, or do you have a more strict blood pressure target for your patients with HEF-REF? No, I think 130, less than 130 over 80 is, is appropriate, except we look at blood pressure as opportunity. <laughs> so I usually am forced to think the other way around is, how low a blood pressure can they tolerate to get on their maximal therapy? Right. So if there's blood pressure to work with and they're not dizzy and their systolic's above 100, I'm going to be increasing their Entresto or their beta block, you know, all the, the, the drug that I can because all those drugs lower blood pressure. So I, I rarely, there are some patients who have blood pressures above 140 over 80 on Coreg and Entresto and spironolactone, but they're not a ton of them. Mm-hmm. you know, out there yeah. in my patient population. I remember in my training that was actually, I was taught just to treat blood pressure to presyncope and then just back off just to hair. <laughs> that was that was our goal. Well, you're trying to, you know, anything you can to reduce afterload, if you think about the physiology, will help your patient feel better without the expense of any ATP. You know, it's not, you're not using energy. So uh, that's why we try to do that. I think this is a good place to to wrap up here. And the last question we always ask is, can you give our audience a couple take-home points that you want to, to highlight from your talk? Sure. I think um, spending time up front with your heart failure patient and explaining the disease and why you're doing what you're doing, you'll end up with more um, quote-unquote compliant patients and, and better outcomes. So planning to, to spend time with those patients. You know, and we didn't get to this, but I do. Th- there's value in having a cardiologist evaluate these patients. Most heart failure is taken care of by internists, and that's probably a good thing. But it's also probably good to have them see a cardiologist, at, you know, annually or more frequently, depending on how bad their heart failure is, because there's the technology is always changing, and and so working collaboratively with them is important. I think those are are the main things. Awesome. Yeah, and I feel like there's a lot that we could have asked you about, like uh, LVADs and. Uh, uh, biventricular, uh, pacers, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think that this, this is a great starting point and maybe we can do like an advanced heart failure class. Cause I, there, there are certainly some more things I could think to talk about, but I, I mean, the, I think this, we've taken more than enough of your time <laughs> and I, I really thank you for that, uh, yeah. for, for all your teaching tonight. Yeah. Really helpful. I'm happy to come back and we, yeah, we, uh, and talk about stage D heart failure, which has really changed a lot in, in the last 10 years. And so happy to do it. And thanks thanks for, for chatting. Well, thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care, guys. All thanks right. a lot. Thanks take so care. much, Dr. Adler. Thanks. And we're back. Excellent. We are back. 
I think we should just read the outro unless you guys had any sort of... I, uh, I just, I don't know. I had, did you want to say... one thing to add. I don't know if it's worthwhile or not. We were talking about diuretics. I wanted to kind of throw this out there when we we're talking to Dr. Adler. Essentially, since most diuretics, I think if not all diuretics, are renally cleared, if you induce a diuresis, you're going to pee out the diuretic. So honestly, it doesn't really matter what dosage you get or you, you give the patient. Once you induce that diuresis, you'll get rid of it. So that's why it really doesn't matter what dosage you give. I think I think the concern is patients getting high doses of diuretics. That you're afraid they're going to bottom out the blood pressure and drive up the creatinine or right, but harm as, the kidneys. But if if you give someone like if you give me at least this is what the what the what the nephrologist I talked to tell me that it, like I'm I am completely Lasix naive. You give me 10 milligrams of Lasix, I'll probably have the, the same amount of diuresis as if you gave me 160 milligrams of Lasix because I will pee it out at the same uh, rate regardless. Okay, I see. You, the, the, you'll you'll clear the excess medication. It's yeah, not exactly. Gonna like, exactly. You're it not going to be peeing for 120 days. Absolutely. Right. Okay, that's a valid point. Paul, I don't know if it's worth saying, though. Anything? No, no, I, I think so. The takeaway point probably for the episode, um, courtesy of Stuart, is really dosing doesn't matter. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And neither does blood pressure. <laughs> so go with God. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's a lot of stuff in this the episode. Age. Uh, and I, I don't feel the need to, to add anything on. So I'll just, I'll just start reading the outro here. Sure, why not? Anytime, Matt. This has been another episode of The Curbside. You sound very sad. Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain it, hole. It, it was yummy this time. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps, which we didn't mention, no on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our monthly video newsletter summarizing key tools, tips, and tricks for your practice mm. at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. I am setting up my studio for that. Yes, I can't wait to see this green screen that you've been teasing for the last several episodes. Dinosaurs. We are committed to... (laughs) 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 Just you cheerfully saying dinosaurs made the entire episode for me. I don't know why. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your input. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. Or you can send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Tell us whatever you want feedback recommend a topic please your source <laughs> okay and finally you can follow us on our pages on facebook instagram or on twitter at the curbsiders until next time i've been dr matthew watto and i've been dr Stuart kent brigham good night and i remain paul williams good night good night paul good night dinosaurs <laughs>